Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is uh, Saturday, uh, September 23rd, 2023. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to another edition of our program. Later on, uh, we'll be bringing you our Pan-African News Report. Back Ukrainian military claims a hit has struck the Black Sea naval operations in Crimea. In the second hour, we listened to speeches from various African leaders at the United Nations General Assembly. Uh, that will include uh, Guinea Conakry, the Republic of Zimbabwe, the Republic of South Africa, and Barbados in the Caribbean. Finally, we pay tribute to the contributions of uh, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, whose birthday was celebrated uh, earlier this week. Uh, we'll hear excerpts uh, from uh, his speech at the United Nations uh, in 1960, as well as a broadcast uh, from uh, the Voice of the Revolution in Conakry, Guinea, from 1966. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We'll take our musical interlude uh, with uh, the music of the TPOK Jazz Orchestra, uh, led by Franco. This is music uh, from uh, 1964. Let's listen in.
le charme s'envole. Ganakoka moiteo, lelona lobi ezala ki viva bibi otiyo. Lelo yogi toboyaniye, ekomina miswa batunga imobali ya uye. Mokili makalamba, nasiyo na maina komiki yoni sanga. Lelona komi mape, mokolo wana yali wana koma kindenza pomba. Gana koka mwateo, lelona lobi ezala ki viva vivi otiyo. Mama
Namekaki mama na kanisa kiteyo koko sangai diyo Siko yonga na monie No kelobi balobi nagaye Nalingi na yeba badalelo yo ozali sevanga motema Pona lingiteo Bapa kola Ngai bozo Sangi sangi abato 
Welcome back. And that was uh, the sound of uh, the TPOK Jazz Orchestra, uh, led by Francois Luamba, uh, better known as Franco, uh, classic uh, Pan-African music uh, from the early to mid-1960s, coming out of the country now known as the Democratic Republic of Congo. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast uh, for this Saturday, September the 23rd, uh, 2023. We are broadcasting from our studios downtown Detroit. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. Our lead story uh, deals uh, with the birthday week of uh, the founder of Ghana, modern Ghana and modern Africa, uh, Dr. President Kwame Nkrumah, uh, who was born on uh, September 21st of 1909. Now, Ghana has reopened the Kwame Nkrumah Memorial Park, a major cultural heritage in the capital city of Accra. It was reopened uh, to memorialize uh, the country's first president in the hope of boosting tourism, according uh, to the Ghana government, the park first opened uh, some 31 years ago. Uh, It has just been completed in refurbishment uh, under the Ghanaian government's five-year project to boost tourism and hospitality as critical drivers of socioeconomic development. The Chinese in Ghana joined their Ghanaian counterparts uh, just two days ago to commemorate uh, Kwame Nkrumah Memorial Day, honoring Ghana's founding president led by the Ghana-China Friendship Association. Participants, they gathered at the recently revitalized Kwame Nkrumah Mausoleum in the capital, where they laid wreaths at the late president's tomb. They also celebrated his visionary leadership and the struggle for Ghana's liberation and his far-sighted efforts in fostering bilateral relations between Ghana and China. Chairman, uh, of the Ghana-China Friendship Association, Anani Dumayakor, allotted uh, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah for, his, uh, for the liberation of Ghana. He also praised Nkrumah for leading Ghana to establish bilateral relations with China, which has been beneficial to Ghana and the African continent as a whole. Benjamin Anyagre, uh, General Secretary of the Ghana-China uh, Friendship Association, said one of the remarkable things about Nkrumah is that his vision for Africa and the world had outlived him and was still relevant in global issues. Quote, we have seen so many new buildings, roads, and interchanges built by the Chinese people for Ghana. The friendship between Ghana and China shall continue for the benefit of both peoples. Uh, that's according to Yang Weiqing, uh, Deputy General Secretary of the Ghana-China Friendship Association. Nkrumah was born on September the 21st of 1909, and the government of Ghana declared the day a statutory national holiday in his memory. Having led Ghana to independence in 1957, Nkrumah inspired other African nations to liberate themselves from the shackles of colonialism. In other news, uh, in the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, the ruling party of the DPRK uh, held a Politburo meeting just this last past Wednesday They held a visit to Russia uh, by Kim Jong-un, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea's leader, as a success with desired results attained. 
the country's state news agency reported yesterday in a report to the Politburo a meeting, uh, Kim Song-nam, department director of the Central Committee of the Workers' Party of Korea, the WPK, said the visit by Kim, general secretary of the WPK and president of the state affairs of the DPRK, has, quote, put the DPRK-Russia relations to a new strategic level, unquote. The official Korean Central News Agency said the report also presented long-term plans for developing the Democratic People's Republic of Congo and the Russian Federation bilateral ties, according to the Korean Central News Agency. The DPRK top leader stressed at the meeting the need to enhance communication between the two countries, quote, to expand and develop cooperation in every field and all around way, and thus make a substantial contribution to the promotion of well-being of their peoples, end quote, it added. And according to the Korean Central News Agency, during his visit to Russia from September the 12th to the 17th, Kim held a meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin, during which the two leaders reached an agreement and consensus on further strengthening strategic and tactical cooperation between the two countries. Listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal, the armed forces of Ukraine confirmed that it struck the headquarters of Russia's Black Sea Fleet in Crimea on yesterday. Quote, the Ukrainian defense forces launched a successful strike on the headquarters of the command of the Russian Black Sea Fleet in temporarily occupied Sevastopol, unquote, the Strategic Communications Directory of the AFU said in a telegram post. And this is according uh, to the Ukrainian government, which is backed uh, by the North Atlantic Treaty Organization and the United States. Earlier in the day, the Russian Defense Ministry said that a building of Russia's Black Sea Fleet headquarters in the city of Sevastopol was damaged in Ukrainian's missile attack. Quote, the enemy launched a missile strike on the fleet's headquarters. A fragment fell near uh, the Lunasharsky Theater, unquote, local government, Mikhail Razavoyakov said in a telegram post. And the United Nations uh, General Assembly 78th session is taking place uh, this week uh, in New York City. And various uh, countries have sent uh, heads of state and high-level officials to the United Nations General Assembly 78th session to speak on many aspects of the current world situation. Later on in our program, uh, we'll bring you uh, several addresses uh, that were delivered over the last several days uh, by heads of state and leading officials at uh, the United Nations General Assembly in New York City. With that, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we would like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers and magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, Go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. 
If you'd like to have access uh, to today's Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast for Saturday, September 23rd, uh, 2023, go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week.
music of uh, Al Green, uh, the Reverend Al Green, the track entitled Take Me to the River. As we mentioned earlier, uh, the United Nations uh, General Assembly 78th session uh, was held uh, just this last past week. It will continue into the coming week. We want to bring you uh, some of the addresses that were delivered at uh, this important uh, annual international gathering. You're going to hear uh, the speech delivered uh, by the Barbados Prime Minister, Neil Motley. Let's listen in. I have great pleasure in welcoming Her Excellency Mia Amomotli, Prime Minister, Minister for National Security and the Public Service, and Minister for Finance, Economic Affairs, and Investment of Barbados. I invite her to address the Assembly. Thank you very much, Mr. President, and I'd like at the outset to congratulate my dear brother from Trinidad and Tobago for his assumption of the office of the Presidency of this General Assembly. I'd also like at the outset to thank the Honorable Secretary General for his continued determination and holding us and the rest of the world to the principles that are sacred to this August institution. The truth is that the speech which he delivered at the beginning of this General Assembly can be adopted wholesale by the government and people of Barbados because it reflects our aspirations and it reflects our view of the current status of the world. I asked myself on Monday night as we met to determine the halfway point of the SDG goals how many roads we have to walk just to make it to the door only to be told that the door is closed. Those are not my words. Those are the words of Rocky Dawuni, a famous reggae artist from Ghana, nominated by M4 for awards multiple times. But his words ring because in a very real sense, are we going to trod the roads only to be told that it's too late? Too late for us to save as many as we can from the climate crisis, too late for us to save as many as we can from the conflicts of war. Too late for us to be able to provide the food that so many need as we reflect on the fact that more people are likely to be hungry in this world in 2030 than in 2015. Or as we get to the basic numbers that 735 million people suffered chronic hunger last year at a time when so many others had so much to throw away and to use. Are we going to be too late for the SDGs that are really the promise of development and the promise of the conferral of dignity on our people? We have today to determine what is the will of this body comprised of the member states to make the fundamental governance changes that will deliver in the third decade of the 21st century. Our world, as you know, is replete with issues. And I don't need to stand here and recount them in detail, for you have heard them in almost every speech delivered from this podium.
But what is the issue is whether we can summon the determination that is required of us to make the changes that are appropriate to the age in which we live. Our democracy cannot survive if we do not have the same facts. But yet we live in a world where the generation of fake news is almost a daily occurrence and where people act on those premises without consideration for whether the news is true or not. The role that artificial intelligence, generative artificial intelligence will play in our world must be for good purposes and not evil. But if we are to ensure that is the case, then an appropriate framework for regulatory action must be put in place. We therefore support the actions of the Secretary General, recognizing that the question will come one day from some as to whether you sought to preserve our democracy or whether you allowed it to crumble and whether you have failed us as individual citizens of the world. We ask that question recognizing that AI is not in the immediate focal point of many because the drama and the crises that surround climate is taking out all of the oxygen literally in the world. Those people who died in Libya recently were going about their business. They had aspirations. They had business that they were hoping to do. Families that they were trying to protect. And in the flash of an eye, all of that came to an end. And not because we didn't expect it or anticipate it. The records of the multinational companies who are engaged in fossil fuels will show that they have always known for a considerable period of time the consequences of their actions. And while they themselves are not the immediate cause, the absence of technology to be able to limit what they are emitting is the cause. And by extension, therefore, they must take responsibility. We can go no further without an engagement of the oil and gas companies that is meaningful and credible, and we need to stop talking about it and just simply ensure that that kind of conversation can happen. But it is not just the oil and gas companies, and we have nothing against them. We do not want to bankrupt them. But their actions continue to have implications for too many of our people. Their actions are equally bolstered by what I call the fit group, the financial institutions, the insurance companies, and the transport companies. They get a buy or a pass because they are invisible to the transactions and to the activity that lead to the problems that the world is facing. But they too are as responsible and need to step up to the plate. The notion that we can preserve global public goods only with public money ignores the fact that we have seen for the last 50 years the absolute dominance of the capitalist markets leading to a consolidation of wealth and hence the ability to be able to play their role must, must be summoned by the rest of us. We cannot continue to put the interests of a few before the lives, the lives of many. I ask us today, 
I ask us today truly to pause because what keeps ringing in my head is that simple phrase don't fail us now don't fail us now and that phrase can come from that little boy or girl who is a victim of hunger one of the 575 million people last year that plea can equally come from those who lost families in the multiple crises across the world in the last few years. That plea can come from small states that may not exist in the future. I ask us therefore, my friends, to ensure that we summon the will. We listened to the Prime Minister of the Netherlands just now. And he reminded us ably that time is not on our side. And if time is not on our side, what must we do? The truth is, we have made some progress. Two years ago, the International Monetary Fund did not have a mechanism to focus on cause of the problems that led to massive macroeconomic instability. We now have the establishment of the Resilience and Sustainability Trust that for the first time will make funds available to middle-income countries that are vulnerable. 20-year money with a 10-and-a-half-year moratorium. A year ago, the President of the World Bank was questioning whether there was a climate crisis. Today, we have a World Bank that for the first time acknowledges that there should be debt clauses that are suspended. Debt pause clauses, as they call it. Our battle now is to ensure that those debt pause clauses are not just for future instruments, but for existing instruments. If not, it will not help many. So we have made progress, but there is still much to be done. The issues of debt sustainability cannot be left on the sidelines, particularly with the number of countries, more than 60 countries facing debt row today as we speak because of the poly crises. Countries being forced to choose between development and building of resilience to fight climate. In our small island states, we value education and health care and the dignity of life. And therefore, it will be anathema for us to tell our citizens that we do not have the space to provide for you those things that were the promise of independence. It is compounded by the failure of the developed world to accept that reparatory justice is a solemn obligation which we must confront. The conversation King Charles told us at the opening of the Commonwealth Heads of Government when he was Prince Charles was a conversation whose time had come, that of reparatory justice. But it can't be a slow, slow conversation taken up when people feel like it has to be a conversation in which equal partners discuss. It cannot be an act of charity of those who simply feel that their conscience must be cleansed. We were about to write the leaders of the European Union last year on this issue of reparatory justice. And we paused because of the Russian incursion into Ukraine. But it seems as though there are not those who want to make peace there or elsewhere in the world. And therefore we have to lift our finger off the pause button 
and resume the discussions because the development deficit caused by centuries of exploitation is now affecting our capacity to build the resilience that is necessary in our nations. Similarly, I want to thank, because a year ago we did not have the Paris Agenda for People and Planet. We had the Bridgetown Initiative, and the Bridgetown Initiative has allowed us to keep the debate going because we need to change, as I said Monday morning in this hall, the belief that we can have short-term money financing development and building resilience. I shan't go into all of the details because we don't have the time. But suffice it to say that we are committed to the twin battle of saving people and planet. And to ask us to do anything else is a false construct that does not work. The markets have to be educated as to why long-term capital is the only salvation for developing countries and ultimately for people and planet. And my friends, year after year we talk about the need for global moral strategic leadership. I shan't go into all of the details, but in my own region, in Africa, in Latin America, in the Pacific, there are too many examples where we fall short. And I speak specifically now first and foremost about Haiti. The world owes Haiti a resolution. Not, it is not a matter of options. The world owes Haiti a resolution. A year ago we knew that the gas riots had led to serious instability. And 12 months later... We cannot get out of this building and into the support that the people of Haiti need. There is no doubt a need for legitimacy with respect to the government of Haiti. And therefore, a national unity government may well be the only bridge that can carry us to safety. The Caribbean community has appointed three former prime ministers as an eminent persons group. And as we heard the Secretary General say in this hall, Politics is the art of compromise. Diplomacy is the art of compromise. I say simply to those who act in the name of the people of Haiti, there must be compromise in constituting that government of national unity if we are to provide the bridge, to provide the security, to stop women from being raped, stop people from being killed, stop people from being affected by cholera and other public health diseases. But even when we put in the institutional support that Haiti may need, and I want to thank the governments of Kenya and Rwanda who from as far back as 12 months ago committed to being able to provide the kind of institutional support and leadership that the Haitian police need. But as they did that commitment, what they have not necessarily accounted for is the continued reduction in the numbers of the police largely because of persons fleeing to lands of greater opportunity and being facilitated in so doing. This cannot wait much longer. And I hope that those who constitute the members of the Security Council will recognize that they cannot use Haiti as a pawn because they have suffered for too long and by the hands of too many. I return now to the issue of Cuba. That Cuba can <laughs> help so many in this world and yet be the continued victim of a blockade of over 60 years, but worse than that, 
a designation as a state sponsor of terrorism is wrong, wrong, wrong. We left Cuba last week. And what the people of Cuba are being asked to face on a daily basis because of a designation by a dying presidency is wrong. And the voices of the global community, many of whom have been the beneficiaries of Cuban assistance, need to stand united and to be able to say that we cannot fight these battles when we need all hands on deck to save the planet. The artificial division of who is right and who is wrong and who is good and who is bad in the eyes of those who are powerful cannot continue to be the way in which this world functions. And let us go to Venezuela. Oil is likely, oil prices, to go over $100. And those small countries who do not produce oil will be the victims of it, as will be our people including in large countries like the United States of America. We must, we must bring resolution to these issues. And it is not incapable of resolution. When the United States of America and many countries in Europe determined that they were recognizing President Guaido without there being a presidency for him to assume because he faced no election, the members of the Caribbean community came to this August institution and met with the Secretary General and met with a number of countries. And little by little we saw people apply their hearts to wisdom and to recognize that the Charter of the United Nations did not allow for that kind of unconstitutional conferral of presidency on anyone. I say today that there must be transparency. It cannot be that the Caribbean community that needs a mechanism for, for, for stabilization in an energy crisis cannot have access to the, 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 the concessionary prices that the government and people of Venezuela are prepared to make available to its neighbors to minimize the suffering. How is it possible for Chevron and the European Union to access the oil and gas of Venezuela but the people of the Caribbean cannot access it at the 35% discount offered by the people of Venezuela. How is it possible that we should have to carry a cost of an additional 4% of GDP in my own country simply because the rules that allow for one do not allow for the other? There must be transparency and there must be moral strategic leadership if we are to build the team to save the planet and to save and attain the SDGs in today's world. My friends, there are many other things that we can discuss. We support the United Nations accepting the responsibility for tax. Why? Because as quickly as the world has been able to find a mechanism for a global minimum corporate tax is as long as it has not found a mechanism to be able to inflate the financing opportunities available to developing countries. It cannot be. We know how to run fast in one set of circumstances when it suits one set of people, but yet we run very slow when it matters to billions of people and their access to life and livelihood. I do not want to prey on your time anymore, but suffice it to say that we have reached a point where we must 
give thanks for the progress made, but recommit ourselves. For the mission was never simply to make progress. The mission is to be able to save the planet and to give the people of the world the best opportunity for life that is necessary for them as human beings. To be able to save the biodiversity of this world. To be able to save the soils of this world that must nurture the food that we eat. To be able to allow us to have access to safe water. And if we don't change how we do our business, if we don't recognize that the Security Council needs to put itself in a position not to speak to climate change, but to protect us against the climate crisis, because it is as much of a crisis as the war in Ukraine or the wars in Africa or the instability and conflict elsewhere in the world. And if we don't take a proactive approach, then we truly shall be victims of it. I believe that reform is critical at this point. But what I believe doesn't matter. What matters is the action of each and every country in this. And will we always be in a position of flux? No. There is hope because human beings want to survive. But the problem is, is that those whose actions we most need may be so confident in their survival that they do not act early enough for us. And that is why I say, will we trod the road to be able to get to the gates only to find that we are too late and the gates have closed? It will be open for some, but it will be closed for many. You know, vision without action, Nelson Mandela told us, is just a dream. And action without vision just passes the time. But vision with action can change the world. Our citizens believe that we come into a talk shop when we come here. You and I know that it's potentially different. But it will only be different when those of you who have the responsibility to act on behalf of governments can ask your governments to come to the point of the decisions that we need to make to provide the funding, the tools, and the solidarity, rebuilding the trust that this debate calls for. And if we can do that, then we will not save all, but we can save the majority of people who are currently on the front line. We, for those of us who work on the SDGs, believe that as we work to save the planet, we have to redouble our efforts. And I leave you with one thing. The efforts to provide education and to save people from hunger and to remove gender discrimination are not simply the actions of governments. They have now equally to be the actions of individual citizens. But governments must help personalize those SDG goals for their citizens. If we can do that and we can continue to make the case for finance, and if we can continue to stay focused on the climate crisis, then yes, we shall see a better world, and we can shine the light on the future of many. I thank you. On behalf of the Assembly, I wish to thank the Prime Minister, Minister for National Security and the Public Service, and Minister of Finance, Economic Affairs and Investment of Barbados for the statement just made. And I request protocol to escort Her Excellency. The Assembly...
Welcome back. That was the Prime Minister of Barbados, the Caribbean state of Barbados, uh, speaking at the United Nations General Assembly, uh, 78th session uh, just this last past week. Prime Minister Mia Motley, a strong voice from the Caribbean and the Global South, uh, speaking to many of the important issues of global security, uh, the environment, climate change, and the unequal uh, distribution of power and resources uh, throughout the international community. Right now, we want to listen to the transitional president of the Republic of Guinea, Mamadou Doumbouya, uh, speaking at the United Nations uh, General Assembly just this week. The Assembly will now hear an address by His Excellency Mamadi Doumbouya, President of the National Committee for the Reconciliation and Development, President of the Republic of Guinea, Head of State. I request protocol to escort His Excellency. On behalf of the General Assembly, I have the honor to welcome His Excellency Mamadi Dumbuya, President of the National Committee for Reconciliation and Development, President of the Republic of Guinea, Head of State, and I invite him to address the Assembly. Monsieur le Président. Mr. President. Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, heads of delegations, Mr. Secretary-General. At the outset, Mr. President, I would like to extend the warm congratulations of the Guinean delegation on your brilliant election to the presidency of the 78th session of the United Nations General Assembly. Before this August Assembly, I would also like to assure you of my country's support. I take this opportunity to also pay a well-deserved tribute to your predecessor, Mr. Shabakorsi of Hungary. to Mr. Secretary-General Antonio Guterres. I extend my gratitude for the dedication with which he leads our organization. Mr. President, ladies and gentlemen, in coming to take part in the work of the 78th regular session of the General Assembly, I'm fulfilling a duty that of conveying the warm greetings of the sovereign people of Guinea. My country continues to place hope in the United Nations to find appropriate solutions to the issues our world continues to face. In this context, Mr. President, we believe that the fundamentals which underpinned the creation of our organization must adapt 
to the profound changes in our society. The theme of the session, peace, prosperity, progress, and sustainability is topical, evocative, and deserves particular attention on our part. There is a coup epidemic in Africa. Following the COVID-19 pandemic, the continent has been hit by an epidemic of military putsches, particularly in the French-speaking country south of the Sahara. Everyone condemns them, sanctions them, is disturbed by the sudden resurgence of this phenomenon that we had thought was a thing of the past, and rightly so. But what I wish to say is that the international community must have the honesty and the rectitude to not content itself simply with denouncing the consequences. Rather, it must look to and address the causes. Coups d'etat have multiplied in Africa in recent years because there are deep-rooted reasons for this. And to remedy the problem, ladies and gentlemen, we must look at these root causes. The putschist is not only the person who takes up arms to overthrow a regime. I want us all to be well aware of the fact that the real putschists, the most numerous, and those who avoid any condemnation, are also those who plot and scheme, who use trickery, who cheat, to manipulate the text of the Constitution in order to stay in power eternally. It is those in white-collar jobs who change the rules of the game as the game unfolds in order to keep the reins of power in their hands. These are the most numerous kinds of putches. Mr. President, ladies and gentlemen, I am one of those who one day decided to shoulder our responsibility to prevent our country from slipping into complete chaos, into an insurrection. No political forces at the time had the courage nor the means to put an end to the duplicity that we were experiencing, as they were all completely neutralized back then. The institutional correction for which my brothers in arms and I took responsibility on September 5th, 2021, was only a consequence of that chaotic situation which had ended up tearing apart the social fabric of my country and undermining our coexistence. This is not an exhaustive list, but we believe that the transitions underway in Africa are due to several factors, 
including broken promises, the lethargy of the people, and leaders tampering with constitutions with the sole concern of remaining in power to the detriment of collective well-being. Today, the African people are more awake than ever and more than ever determined to take their destiny into their own hands. The unequal distribution of wealth creates endless inequalities, famine, and abject poverty, which make the lives, the daily lives of our populations increasingly difficult. These inequalities are part of the causes for the events that endanger our peaceful coexistence above all. When the wealth of a country is in the hands of an elite, while newborns die in hospitals due to a lack of incubators, it is not surprising that in such conditions we are seeing transitions in order to respond to the profound aspirations of the people. Africa, ladies and gentlemen, is suffering from a governance model that has been imposed on it. A model that is certainly good and effective for the West, which developed it over the course of its history, but which is difficult to incorporate and adapt to our realities, our customs, and our environment. Alas, I have to say that the graft did not take. I know that when I say this, many will immediately say to themselves, oh, another warmonger who wants to wring the neck of democracy, or another soldier who wants to impose his dictatorship. However, I want to say very clearly, without hypocrisy, Without pretense, eye to eye, we're all aware that this democratic model that you have so insidiously, skillfully imposed on us after the La Bolle summit in France, something you've been imposing almost religiously, this model does not work various economic and social indices demonstrate this plain and clear. This is not a value judgment on democracy itself. Believe me, this is just taking stock of the situation. It's a balance sheet. Over several decades of chaotic experimentation with this model in our environment, we can make this observation. This was a period full of nothing but political games. And this, of course, has been to the detriment of what is essential, namely the economy and the local processing of our natural resources. Allow me to take this truth exercise a little further. 
through my short but very intense experience of managing estates, Guinea, I have come to better understand the extent to which this model has, above all, contributed to maintaining a system of exploitation and plunder of our resources by others and a rampant corruption of our elites. National leaders who have often been granted democratic labels based on their acquiescence or their capacity for selling off the resources and the property of their people or perhaps their ease in giving in to the pseudo recommendations and injunctions of the great powers. I must confess in this regard that everything that I am facing goes beyond all imagination. These are the same people who profess democracy, transparency, who denounce poor governance and corruption, who dictate the rules. It is they who, behind the scenes, very discreetly and underhandedly, are increasing pressure to make us cede our national wealth through unconscionable Leonine contracts. I understand certain leaders and some of my predecessors who, because they possess certain weaknesses, because they were under pressure, or because they had skeletons in their closets, or particularly because they had a political agenda, gave in to what was being asked of them. I understand them, even if I do not approve. In some cases, I was even reminded that if I had a political agenda, I would be less comfortable carrying out the reforms that my government and I are tackling. One thing is certain. We have but one concern, and that is the well-being of the people and living together. This is our priority. This is why the transition I lead has chosen to focus methodically on clear objectives in a precise order. The social, the economic, and the political. Mr. President, Ladies and gentlemen, I wear my uniform in service to my people, and I would be grateful if you would respect that oath, an oath to keep ourselves a respectable distance from divisions of all kinds that many attempt to fuel in our countries. The Sahel is undergoing one of the most serious crises and it's very long history. But it has the resources that are required to face it 
its legendary sense of diplomacy must be unleashed so that we can speak to each other without interference. It is for this reason that ECOWAS, whose vocation was economic, was stopped getting involved in politics and favored dialogue. The African people are tired, exhausted by the categorizations with which everyone wants to box us in. Africa's population is young. It did not experience the Cold War. It did not experience the ideological wars that have shaped the world over the last 70 years. That is why we Africans are insulted by the boxes, the categories which sometimes place us under the influence of the Americans, sometimes under that of the British, sometimes the French, or the Chinese, or the Russians, and even the Turks. We are neither pro nor anti-American. We are neither pro nor anti-Chinese, nor pro or anti-French, nor pro or anti-Russian, nor pro or anti-Turkish. We are simply pro-African, that is all. Placing us under the influence of this or that power is an insult. It is contempt and racism towards a continent of more than 1,300,000,000 people. It is important that in this prestigious and influential assembly we understand clearly and definitively that the era of the old Africa is over. With a population of more than one billion Africans, around 70% of whom are young people, young people who are completely free, open-minded, open to the world, and determined to take their destiny into their own hands. The time has come to realize that the structures, the rules from the post-war era established in the absence of our states, which did not yet exist at the time, are obsolete. This is the end of an unbalanced, an unjust era where we had no say in the matter. It is time to take our rights into our account and to let us take our proper place, but also and above all, it is time to stop lecturing us and to stop 
treating us with condescension like children. Rest assured that we're old enough to know what is good for us. We are mature enough to define our priorities, to design our own models, which are in line with our identity, the daily reality of, of our countries and our populations, in line with what we are, quite simply. We would be very grateful to you if you trust us and let us run our business as you have allowed in certain regions of the world, as you have allowed in Asia, in the Near, and the Middle East to cite only a few. This infantilization that we have experienced has had the worst effect on African youth who are now emancipated. In this context, we are all challenged and called upon to carry a, out a better analysis of the situation with a view to initiating and pursuing new policies for the benefit of all. The international community must look to Africa with new eyes. It must now engage in genuine cooperation with Africa in a spirit of win-win partnership. I thank you for your attention. Thank you. On behalf of the Assembly, I wish to thank the President of the National Committee for Reconciliation and Development, President of the Republic of Guinea, and Head of State for the statement just made. I request protocol to escort His Excellency. That was uh, the military leader of the Republic of Guinea, uh, Mahadou Doumbouya, uh, speaking at the United Nations General Assembly, 68th session, just this last past week in New York City. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week.
September 23rd, 2023. Uh, we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Going back to the United Nations General Assembly, 78th session, we'll listen to the speech uh, from His Excellency President Cyril Ramaphosa of the Republic of South Africa. Can I start now? The Assembly will hear an address of His Excellency Matamela Cyril Ramaphosa, President of the Republic of South Africa. I request protocol to escort His Excellency. On behalf of the General Assembly, I have the honor to welcome His Excellency Matamela Cyril Ramaphosa, President of the Republic of South Africa and to invite him to address the Assembly. President of the 78th Session of the UN General Assembly, the United Nations Secretary General, Mr. Antonio Guterres, 
Excellencies, Heads of State and Government, Ministers and Ladies and Gentlemen, 78 years ago, in the aftermath of the Second World War, the nations of the world made a solemn commitment to save future generations from the horror and the suffering of war. Through the United Nations Charter, these nations accepted a shared mandate to foster peace and promote fundamental human rights, to promote social progress, and to ensure that there's a better standard of life for all. And yet, as we gather here, much of humanity is confronted by war and conflict, by want and hunger, by disease and environmental damage and disaster. Solidarity and trust between states is being eroded. Inequality, poverty and unemployment are deepening across many nations in the world. In these conditions and in the wake of a devastating global pandemic, the achievement of the Sustainable Development Goals seem increasingly remote. At the moment when every human effort should be directed towards the realization of Agenda 2030, our attention and our energies have once again been diverted by the scourge of war. But these woes these divisions, these seemingly intractable troubles can and must be overcome. Over millennia, the human race has demonstrated an enormous capacity for resilience, for an ability to resolve problems, for adaptation, innovation, compassion and solidarity. At this moment, we are all called upon to reaffirm these essential qualities that define our common humanity. These qualities must be evident in how we work together as a global community and as nations of the world to end war and conflict. South Africa has consistently advocated for dialogue, for negotiation and diplomacy to prevent and end conflict and achieve lasting peace. It has committed itself as a country to the promotion of human rights, human dignity, justice, democracy, and to the adherence of international law. From the experience of our own journey, from the evil system of apartheid, which was declared a crime against humanity by this very organization, to democracy, we value the importance of engaging all parties to conflicts to achieve peaceful, just, and enduring solutions. It is these principles 
that inform South Africa's participation in the African Peace Initiative, which seeks a peaceful resolution of the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. In this conflict, as in all conflicts, we have insisted that the UN Charter's principle of respect for the territorial integrity of every country should be upheld. Our participation in the African Peace Initiative, supported by seven countries from the African continent, is informed by a desire to see an end to the suffering of those most directly affected by the conflict and the millions on our own continent and across the world who, as a result of the conflict, are now vulnerable to worsening hunger and deprivation. As we engaged with the parties in this conflict as African leaders, one of the issues we raised was that there should be confidence-building measures that could create a sense of conflict towards the resolution of this conflict. In this regard, we said issues such as the return of the children who were removed from Ukraine should be returned. We also said that the prisoners of war should be exchanged between the two countries. I've just held a meeting with President Zelensky who says that in part some of our efforts are bearing fruit as the children are now being returned and the prisoners are also being exchanged. But then we said we need to see this happening on a much faster pace. As the international community, we must do everything within our means to enable meaningful dialogue just as we should refrain from any actions that fuel conflict. As we confront other conflicts in several parts of the world, including on our own continent, Africa, we need to be investing in prevention and peace building. We support the call by the UN Secretary General in the new agenda for peace for member states to provide more sustainable and predictable financing for peace-building efforts. As a global community, we should be concerned by the recent incidents of unconstitutional changes of government in some parts of Africa. The global community needs to work alongside the African Union to support peace efforts in the DRC, in Libya, Sudan, Somalia, Mali, Central African Republic, South Sudan, North Mozambique, the Great Lakes region, the Sahel, Niger, and the Horn of Africa. The African Union Peace and Security Council has declared that it stands ready to deepen its cooperation with the UN Security Council to silence the guns on the African continent and to achieve peace and stability and development. We are called upon to remain true
to the founding principles of the United Nations by recognizing the inalienable right of the people of Western Sahara for self-determination in line with the relevant UN General Assembly resolutions. We must work for peace in the Middle East for as long as the land of the Palestinians remains occupied, for as long as their rights are ignored and their dignity is denied, such peace will remain elusive. The actions of the government of Israel have imperiled the possibility of a viable two-state solution. The principles of the UN Charter on territorial integrity and on the prohibition of the annexation of land through the use of force must be applied in this situation as well. South Africa continues to call for the lifting of the economic embargo that was imposed 60 years ago against Cuba, an embargo that has caused untold damage to the country's economy and the people of Cuba as well. The sanctions that are also being applied against South Africa's neighbor, Zimbabwe, should also be lifted as they are imposing untold suffering on ordinary Zimbabweans, but also have a collateral negative impact on neighboring countries as well, such as my own country, South Africa. As many people around the world are confronted by hunger and want, the essential human qualities of cooperation and solidarity must be evident in the actions that we take to bridge the divide between the wealthy and the poor. We must summon the necessary will and resolve to regain the momentum towards the achievement of the 2030 Agenda. This means that we must address the fundamental developmental challenges that have long cherished, characterized as well, our unequal world. To address the developmental challenges that face many people in the world, we are required to focus on targeted investments, on technology transfer, capacity building support, especially in key areas such as supporting industrialization, building infrastructure, ensuring that agriculture investment takes place, ensuring that there is investment in water, energy, education, and health. This also requires predictable and sustainable financial support, including supportive trade policies from the international community. We call on the partners of the wealthier countries to meet the financial commitments they have made. It is a matter of great concern to us from the Global South 
that these wealthier countries in the global north have failed to meet the undertakings they made to provide a hundred billion dollars a year for developing economies to take climate action. This must be changed and the money must be made available in the interest of development. We support the proposals outlined in the Secretary General's Sustainable Development Goal Stimulus. In particular, we support the call to tackle debt and debt distress that many countries, particularly in the Global South, are burdened by. And we support the call to massively scale up affordable long-term financing to $500 billion a year and to expand contingency financing to countries that are in need. It is a grave indictment on this international community that we can spend so much money on war. And in fact, trillions are being spent on war, but we cannot support action that needs to be taken to meet the basic needs of billions of people in the world, needs such as addressing hunger, health, empowering women, and making sure that there is development in countries that are vulnerable. The achievement of the Sustainable Development Goals depends fundamentally on the empowerment of women in all spheres of life. Social and economic progress will not be possible unless we end gender discrimination. We must ensure that there is equal access for women to health care, education, as well as economic opportunities. We must pay particular attention to the provision of adequate health services to every woman, child, and adolescent. By doing so, we will fundamentally improve the health and well-being of all. The empowerment of women must be central to the actions we now take towards the realization of Agenda 2030. The women of the world need empowerment. They have a right to empowerment. They have a right also to participate equally in decision-making structures of all institutions in the world. I am proud that in South Africa, 50% of the members of the Cabinet of South Africa are women. And today I'm accompanied by an all-women delegation to this United Nations General Assembly. It should be a matter of concern to us all that the majority of people who are sitting in this assembly are men. The question we have to ask, where are the women of the world? The women of the world 
have a right to be here to represent the views of women across the world. The essential human qualities of innovation and adaptation must be evident in the actions we take to prevent the destruction of our planet. Africa is warming faster than the rest of the world. We are told that the 20 climate hotspots in the world that we have, we find 17 of them in Africa. Africa is least responsible for the climate damage that has been caused and yet it bears the greatest burden. Centuries after the end of the slave trade, decades after the end of the colonial exploitation of Africa's resources, the people of our continent are once again bearing the cost of industrialization of the North and the development of the wealthy nations of the world. This is a price that the people of Africa are no longer prepared to pay. Many countries in the North count their assets in the mineral resources that are beneath the African soil. The wealth of Africa belongs to Africans. The mineral wealth that is beneath the soil of Africa must, in the end, accrue to Africans. We urge global leaders to accelerate the global decarbonization while pursuing equality and shared prosperity. We need to advance all three pillars of the Paris Agreement, mitigation, adaptation and support, with equal ambition and urgency. African countries alongside other developing economic countries need increased financial support to both implement the 2030 Agenda and to achieve their climate change goals in a comprehensive and integrated manner. We need to operationalize the loss and damage fund for vulnerable countries hit hard by climate disasters as agreed at COP27. Africa has embraced this challenge. Africa is determined to deploy smart, digital and efficient green technologies to expand industrial production, to boost agricultural yields, to drive growth and create sustained employment for Africa's people. As the global community, we must ensure the essential qualities that define our humanity are evident in the institutions that manage the conduct of international relations. We require institutions that are inclusive, that are representative, that are democratic and advance the interests of all nations. We require a renewed commitment to multilateralism based on clear rules and supported by effective institutions. This is the moment to proceed with the reform of the United Nations Security Council to give meaning to the principle of the sovereign equality of nations and to enable 
the Council to respond more effectively to current geopolitical realities. We are pleased that the common African position on the reform of the Security Council is increasingly enjoying wide support. This process must move to text-based negotiations, creating an opportunity for convergence between member states. The recently held BRICS summit in Johannesburg also affirmed the view that the United Nations Security Council should be reformed and should ensure that those who are not represented, that is nations that are not represented, are also represented. We must ensure that the voice of the African continent and the global south is strengthened in the United Nations and broader multilateral system. All the peoples represented here in this United Nations had their origins in Africa. In Africa, they developed the tools and capabilities to spread across the world and achieved remarkable feats of development and progress. And all this was due to the skills and the talent that originated from the African continent. Despite its history, despite the legacy of exploitation, colonialism, and subjugation, Despite the ongoing challenge of conflict and instability, Africa is determined and ready to regain its position as a site of human progress. The era of African development has arrived. Through the African continental free trade area, which is creating a wider, seamless trading area and also accelerated interconnectivity. African countries are mobilizing their collective means and resources to achieve shared prosperity. Through this treaty, African countries are establishing for themselves the foundation for a massive increase in trade, accelerated infrastructure development, regional integration, and sustainable industrialization. As the global community, we have the means and we have the desire to confront and overcome enormous challenges that face humanity today. As the nations gathered here in this General Assembly, let us demonstrate that we have both the will as well as the resolve to secure a peaceful, prosperous and sustainable future for our world, but more importantly, for future generations that will follow, leaving no one behind. That is the duty that we all now have. I thank you. I wish to thank the President of the Republic of South Africa for the statement just made and I request protocol to escort His Excellency. Mm -hmm. President Cyril Ramaphosa of the Republic of South Africa.
addressing the United Nations uh, General Assembly 78th session uh, just this last past uh, week. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast. Uh, Today is Saturday, September the 23rd, uh, 2023, and we're broadcasting uh, from our studios uh, in uh, downtown Detroit. And uh, we'll take a break, and uh, we'll be back uh, with the concluding segment of our program.
the music of uh, Troy's own Anita Baker and no one to blame. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast uh, for Saturday, September 23rd, 2023. We are broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Just two days ago, uh, represented the 113th anniversary, in fact, uh, the 100th and uh, 14th uh, anniversary of uh, the late uh, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana. We want to play a speech uh, from the United Nations General Assembly of September 23rd, 1960, uh, featuring uh, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah. Uh, He was uh, speaking uh, during the uh, period of the initial phase of the so-called Congo crisis, uh, which eventually led some four months later uh, to the assassination of uh, Patrice Lumumba. uh, Eliminated by the United Nations, there will be no end to the chaos and confusion which now reigns in the new state. It is impossible for a saint to be neutral on the issue of good and evil, as it is for the United Nations to be neutral on the issue of legality and illegality. The United Nations must determine what is lawful and what is right, and then see that this is enforced. Otherwise, the United Nations will betray the principles which were proclaimed in the first resolution of the Security Council, on the basis of which the legitimate government invited them to enter the Congo Republic. Mr. President, distinguished delegates, knowing the situation in the Congo as I do, and in order to save the Congo from chaos and confusion, from strife and political and economic instability, to drive the Cold War out of Africa, save the reputation of the United Nations itself, safeguard the legitimate government which invited the United Nations to the Congo, I strongly recommend the United Nations the adoption of certain measures, which I am sure will definitely provide the only solution to the present impasse in the Congo. In proposing these recommendations, I wish to take this opportunity of expressing my personal appreciation of the way in which the General Secretary has handled a most difficult task, and my own personal belief in the ideas of the United Nations Charter, which constitute in our time the strongest bulwark for international peace and security. The following are the recommendations of the government of Ghana. One, that the United Nations command in the Congo should be changed forthwith and a firm, strong command established with clear, positive directions to support the legitimate government with Katsabubu as president and Lumbumba as prime minister. and whose jurisdiction should be recognized throughout the whole of Congo Republic. In other words, the present composition of the United Nations Command should be changed, and the composition of the United Nations Force, its military command and administration altered, so that it is drawn entirely from contingents of the forces of the independent African state serving the Congo. 
that that every support should be given to the central government as the legitimate government of the Congo with the full support of the United Nations. That all private armies, including the Belgian officer forces in Katanga, should be disarmed forthwith and the Congolese National Army be regrouped and reorganized for the purpose of training so that ultimately it can play its proper role as a national army of the Congo Republic until such time that the central government considered it possible to dispense with the services of the United Nations forces. Four, that this new command of the United Nations forces should support the central government to restore law and order in the Congo in accordance with the first resolution of the Security Council in reliance on which Ghana and the other independent African states place their contingents on the United Nations command. Five, that the United Nations should guarantee the territorial integrity of the Republic of Congo in accordance with the provisions of the Constitution agreed at that time, at the time of independence. Six, that all financial aid and technical assistance to the Congo Republic should be arranged only with the legitimate government of the Congo Republic and channeled through the United Nations and guaranteed and supervised by a committee of independent African states appointed by the school council and who should be accountable to the United Nations. <laughs> Mr. President, distinguished delegates, I must now thank you for the patience with which you have listened to me and also for the honor of this opportunity of addressing you. Pages from history, uh, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, uh, the first president of the Republic of Ghana, uh, speaking before the United Nations on September 23rd, uh, 1960, on uh, the Congo crisis, uh, which was a prophetic speech delivered some 63 years ago. We'll listen uh, to a radio broadcast uh, delivered over the voice of the African Revolution in March of 1966, after the counter-revolutionary coup d'etat uh, in Ghana on February 24th of 1966, and the assumption of the co-presidency by Osajifu Dr. Kwame Nkrumah in the People's Republic of Guinea. Let's listen to this radio broadcast. Fellow countrymen, my heart is heavy as I witness the damage which this clique of neo-colonialist conspirators are doing to our country. At the bidding of their overseas neo-colonialist masters, they are dismantling the work of 15 years. They are telling you that Ghana is bankrupt. They are telling you that our country is in debt to the extent of some 240 million pounds. What fools they are. How ignorant for them to think that you believe these stupid lies. Open your eyes and look around you. See for yourself. See the splendid new Tamahago. See the mighty water dam. See the fine roads which we have built under the leadership of the Convention People's Party and its government. See the schools, the colleges, and the universities. See the clinics, hospitals, health centers, and the facilities 
which we have created. See the factories which are already springing up. These are no debts. These are not debts. They are investments in our future as an independent nation. These are the physical guarantees of the bright new future which I have promised you and I have been working for. Together, we can put our Ghana family and squarely on its own feet. Together, we can create the things we need for ourselves instead of going cap in hand for charity handouts from foreign powers whose only wish is to exploit us and make us vassals to their interests. I know these are hard and trying days for you. I have never tried to conceal from you that real independence, that is to say economic independence, does not come without hard struggle and sacrifice. Unlike the cheats and deceivers, the liars and traitors who are now trying to lord it over you, I have never promised you any easy road. I have respected your good sense, your capacity for work, your pride in yourselves, and your sense of national dignity. Why do you think these traitors, these agents and lackeys of colonialism and of international intrigue to restore the independence of Ghana, chose this moment to perform their dastardly act? I will tell you, less than one month before they struck to destroy all our hard work, we had inaugurated the first electricity from the Volta Dam. Only three days before this treachery, we had signed a new agreement to irrigate the mighty Accra Plains. At last, we were on the threshold of a great new victory. We had, in 1957, won our political independence after years of struggle. Now, in 1966, we were at the threshold of winning our economic independence. The same people who tried to sabotage our winning of political independence nine years ago have now stopped to sabotage our economic independence and are systematically dismantling our socialist gains and achievements. Before the traitors and the rebellious National Liberation Council tried to usurp power during my absence from Ghana, Ghana was a heaven to which the oppressed from all parts of Africa could come to carry on their struggle. It was a heaven for freedom fighters, for independence and against colonialism. The name of Ghana was revered all over the African continent as a staunch friend of the oppressed. African brothers from South Africa, from Odisha, from Mozambique and Angola, from the so-called Portuguese Guinea, and the Cape Verde Islands and other oppressed colonial areas were given hospitality amongst us. Do you think that this is something of which we needed to be ashamed? Not at all. On the contrary, it was something of which we should be justly proud. Haven't we proclaimed that the independence of Ghana is meaningless until it is linked up with the total liberation of Africa? Now, hundreds of these brave freedom fighters who came to our country trusting us to look after them and help them in their struggle against colonial oppression and believing as we do that Africa and the struggle for freedom is indivisible. These brave men and women have been sent back, bag and baggage, 
by this traitorous clique to the countries from which they have fled to seek refuge, inspiration, and protection in Ghana. Countrymen, a new phase of the African Revolution has been reached. This revolution must overcome and triumph over imperialism, racialism, and neocolonialism. It must finally usher in the total emancipation and the political unification of our continent. Africa must be free. Africa must be united. That was uh, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, and that's going to conclude our program uh, for today, uh, Saturday, September 23rd, 2023. If you'd like to have access to this program, go to the Pan-African Radio Network at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to have access to the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll close out uh, with the music of legendary saxophonist Thy Reed, uh, whose birthday we commemorated just uh, two days ago. Let's listen in. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week. If I should lose you The stars would fall from the sky If I should lose you The leaves would wither and die The birds in May Sing a mournful refrain And I would wander around Hating the sound of rain With you beside me The rose would bloom in the snow No winds of winter would blow I gave you my love And I was living a dream And living would seem in vain If I ever lost you
down from the long lost stages through the different stages. Things that man was always jumping, and if you try to figure it out, sure it's true. You know I gotta be related to you. Man started swinging long ago. Go dig the history books, you're gonna know that it's so. Now every single human being is bound to have a brother or two. Don't forget that it's true. The people we know, they all originated long ago. Hope you know that all of us need virtually to stick together on the family tree. Brothers and sisters here on earth, and now before it's too late, you better know what it's worth. That all of us need urgently to stick together on the family tree. Brothers and sisters here on earth. And now before it's too late, you better know what it's worth. And it's getting pretty late right now.